Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Uh, we still have to make money or, or produce food off that. So therefore, it's always to one degree or another to, uh, going to be constrained. So I guess the trouble with, with um, uh, conventional modern ag is that we've got almost down to a very, very thin G'day and welcome to the Farms Vice podcast with your host, Jack Creswell. Whether you farm it, service it or just love it, this podcast is for you. We'll bring you the techniques and technologies you can implement into your day straight from the leaders and innovators themselves. Spread the farm's advice so that we can reach more farmers right across Australia. Follow us on all of your socials at Farms Advice and let's get into this episode. Well, welcome to the Farms Advice podcast, Bruce Maynard. Great to have you in the studio as the 2022 Bob Hawke Award winner. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jack. And it's great to see, and it's also good to see these award winners um, after their hard w- years of work. It doesn't, it's not overnight success, is it? As you will may know, it doesn't happen overnight, these type of things. No, indeed. There's a fair few hard yards, but also uh, I very m- much want to reflect that my journey uh, has not been as an individual. There's so many people have uh, contributed along the way with knowledge, skills, support and encouragement. So that's uh, really hopefully everybody that uh, uh, that has uh, assisted in one way or, or another feels that it's partly their uh, award as well. Yeah, amazing. And you wouldn't be able to do it without the community behind you as well um, and also the team on farm there for you. But Bruce, before we get down to a little bit about the award and how you got to where you are currently, just give us a little bit about your connection to agriculture and your background. Yes, I'm a fourth generation farmer in central west New South Wales uh, between Narromine and Trangy. So that's approximately one hour's drive from Dubbo, about five and a half hours drive from uh, Sydney. Uh, out in our part of the world, it's fairly uh, flat uh, topography and uh, is a, traditionally was a mixed uh, cropping uh, zone. And now it's gone uh, and uh, less livestock in this area. 
we've changed our operations uh, to head towards uh, making it a uh, more complex grassland, shrubland, open woodland. So trying to replicate more of what it may have been like uh, prior to uh, agricultural settlement, but uh, all the while trying to retain uh, a, a practical and uh, profitable business. Yeah, right. So stripping it back a little bit, where did it all start for you, your fourth generation on farm? This farm has been in the family for a while? Yes, in, indeed. And so, uh, yeah, I guess I've uh, often asked about, well, what's the, the motivations? And and always it's got to be a combination of heart and head, uh, I think. And so, so the heart was always interested in, in nature and natural things and uh, the complexity uh, there. And uh, But then the head part was uh, uh, growing up in a, a period and coming back to the farm after school and so forth when things were, were quite uh, difficult. So uh, late 80s, early 90s, um, a lot of uh, a squeeze on there financially and, um, and we had to work our way forward out of that. One small but really important part of my journey was uh, going away to the United States as a Rotary Youth Exchange for a full year. Uh, immediately after school and at that time uh, they were uh, suffering uh, uh, similar sorts of squeezes even though they had at their uh, disposal where I uh, lived in southern Minnesota um, many of the factors that here we uh, usually said if only we had reliable rainfall or better soils or government support and so forth so um, uh, with all of that in um, uh, in um, mind it was so interesting to see at that um, uh, stage that uh, the, the rate of farmer um, uh, uh, removal out of agriculture at that, that point was greater there than here so that was a, a bit of a structural point for me to think about it's the structures we put in place and our long-term uh, guardrails if you like of where we're headed uh, determine a lot of, uh, of uh, our outward results. Do you think that comes back to the appeal of what a farm is, the workload, um, saying that in America that the turnover of farmers getting out of agriculture was quite high um, in comparison to Australia anyway? Do you think that's the appeal and you like bringing it back to nature, um, maybe less stress on yourself, less stress on the stock, your soils? Does it come back to that sort of paradigm? Yes, I think that's uh, that's one of the drivers, and uh, and all the while we, we have to keep it real in the if you like in the sensible centre, and uh, and it's got to be practical logistically and uh, uh, reasonably for the people starting and it because each operation is so different. It is with the people where we always should start because what do they want out of their their situation? They're the ones that are going to have to do the hard yards each each day, and uh, that's where. Over the years, I think uh, uh, standard approaches and conventional agriculture have swayed away and, and had, if you like, just a, an overriding goal on economics rather than seeing it that economics and finance are actually the means towards our end rather than the end themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, keep it keep it real, but let's aim for what we really actually want in our communities and uh, and our farms and uh, and head for that. Definitely, I think. Correlating the two with profitability and sustainability can run together and some think it just sort of has a bad crossover where one drops off and one gains. Um, but what you're doing, remaining profitable and also the greater outlook of where we're attracting um, younger farms that come in or even new entrants into the market. They could be 50-year-olds 
um, and seeing a career change just to see is it profitable and is it sustainable and giving back to our soil, our communities, which probably more so everyone's looking at a little bit more, aren't they? Indeed, yes. And and uh, sometimes there's the uh, uh, that dichotomy that you uh, suggested that people will put forward, you know, you can't be green if you're in the red uh, uh, type uh, saying and that sort of thing is actually missing the point that, um, uh, that uh, since the Second World War has actually been an acceleration of negative trends uh, in, in our agriculture in, in general and uh, profitability has, has gone down. The number of people in rural communities has gone down and our environmental landscapes have gone down measurably. So all of those trends heading that way, what's gone up? And certainly two very large factors have gone up and that is productivity and uh, inputs. So uh, those trends, uh, if we don't uh, shape for something else, well, we're going to keep on receiving those, those, those trends. So once again, um, we uh, must ensure that, that uh, like treating fire, that it's a, a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. That's the way we need to look at, at our farming uh, systems, which uh, serve us all. Yeah, exactly. So a great background there and leading in, do you think if you didn't go to Minnesota uh, with the Rotary for that year, your avenue now, you'd be a little bit different? Oh, certainly. I, I, I think I've had a very, very fortunate life, and that's just one of the many examples where uh, a, a great deal of generosity has uh, been uh, given to me, and I've been the uh, recipient of, of that in so many ways. And because and genuinely, most people would like to uh, share their knowledge and, and wisdom, especially if they've been at any tasks for a very long time. And, uh, uh, and really, uh, you know, trying your, your best to be open to. Uh, all of that is very, uh, very useful. There's always something to be learned. It doesn't matter whose place you, you go to, even if they're uh, not necessarily the, the best performers by any measure on their, their property. There's always something that they're doing better than everybody else. Yeah, absolutely. And it's learned you in the sweet spot of where you are today. Um, just like many other farmers out there, you're pretty humble about being the prestigious Bob Hawke award winner within Landcare Australia. But what I want to know is, in a sentence or two, what does Landcare mean to you initially? Community, uh, Jack, and uh, grassroots and from uh, uh, an organisation and a movement driven from the bottom up and uh, the fact that it's still going uh, three and a bit decades after it first really kicked off is a great testament that it, that it still has at its heart that uh, community. Beautifully put. Um, and now we'll just get into a little bit about your operations and open the can of worms and hopefully those worms are in the soil and see how it all gets on um, where you are. So what's your operation look like and what probably what did it look like and how have you sort of translated it into a sustainable sort of farm that you, on the back end of winning the Land Care Award? Indeed, yes. So it has been a um, uh, about 35-year journey, so a lot of uh, major changes, plenty of minor ones. Um, what we've uh, sought to do is, is try our best to be pretty good implementers of good ideas, as well as coming up with some innovations of, uh, of our own. So uh, if you'd uh, come and seen us uh, in about 1990, you would have found us having a seven-year rotation of uh, four years loose and three years um, uh, cereal cropping, uh, doing uh, direct uh, drilling uh, 
uh, as our crop establishment there. So that's just one pass, but full uh, soil turnover uh, in uh, in sowing our, our crops. Uh, minimal amounts of, uh, of pesticides, not any summer fallow, but uh, uh, lots of uh, livestock, so predominantly sheep in those those days, but with our uh, uh, our soil surface, if you looked at a lot of it at that point in time, uh, very uh, hard and uh, hard set. And um, even though we were trying to implement what was best uh, practice uh, suggestions of uh, of those times, uh, we could see and feel that the the trend was not uh, good. So that was where we we changed from. If you come to our place now, you'll you'll find every paddock is a mixed grassland on the, uh, the base layer. And then we have uh, uh, planted over 350,000 shrubs and 200,000 trees in the, the period of, of uh, time and continue to try and add to the diversity. So nowadays it's um, a very diverse looking outlook and um, more interesting because of that. And uh, pleasingly uh, uh, my three, uh, Children uh, are looking to uh, be involved in the business in one way or shape going forward. Beautiful. And just sort of breaking down the systems, looking at your, I saw you on TV the other day, talking about your no-kill cropping system and how that's working out for you, um, reducing probably your impact across each paddock and seeing how you can improve that and also run it alongside uh, the native grasses, pastures that you've sown in as well. Talk to us a little bit about the no crop, no kill cropping system that you've implemented. Yes, Jack, it's um, uh, one of the things that we uh, have innovated and uh, uh, it sits uh, a little bit separate on the, uh, the family tree of cropping systems in that it uses complexity and complementarity as the drivers of production rather than simplification. So standard broadacre crops, uh, and cropping systems rely on usually simplifying, taking out as many competitors to the um, uh, to the plant that you're planting, and then getting the maximum yield. And that is effective as far as maximum yield goes. However, though, there are some um, uh, downsides to that. Of course, it takes out uh, essentially almost all the biodiversity. We're talking in those uh, modern conventional paddocks; they're mostly a desert most of the year for a period of time, they grow a single species. And so that uh, the natural functions of the soil and of the uh, above ground biodiversity are extremely limited. So ours are, uh, crops are grown into uh, full grasslands that have as much diversity as they wish to express. We use our livestock over the top to uh, 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 utilize uh, uh, that and make a profit of that extra diversity and, and biomass but also the grain that we're, uh, we're getting off is inevitably going to be a more complex end product than if we were to grow those exact same uh, types of uh, grains in a simplified system. So uh, no-kill provides a lot of uh, uh, different uh, benefits and, and the easiest way to picture it is that we keep on adding cream to the cake, but we don't take away the cake. Yeah. So what sort of results have you seen off the back of the no-kill cropping system, like in terms of yields for your crop, um, but also probably measuring the the pickup from running the livestock across that paddock as well, um, eating out those plants that run coincide with the crop. Indeed, yes, so a great question, and it's a, uh, uh, the inevitable and uh, a good question first comes. So our 
grain yield will only be, uh, uh, depending upon the year, something like one quarter to one third of what the conventional crops surrounding us would, would be. And that rule of thumb holds up pretty consistently across where it's been applied in, in Australia. It may be different in other countries because there are other people trying these sort of things now. Um, so, but that's a bit of a, a marker. The, the but on the end of the, the question is that, but the whole paddock actually produces 30 to 40% more biomass over a whole year. And that is the, the, the key here that we are, back to that analogy, uh, leaving the cake and we're taking off the cream. So we definitely get less cream than if we got rid of all the, the cake and had that cream only, for sure. But also it's ultra low cost. So the costs of putting in a, in a crop are in the order of 10% or less from a, an equivalent conventional system sitting next to it. And so uh, that's the exciting uh, part of not only you can see that there's, oh, there's an interesting um, profitability uh, uh, calculation there, but also it takes away risk because yep. one of the bigger problems of, um, uh, of conventional cropping risk-wise is as soon as they start preparing the paddock, whether it be with tillage or chemicals, you are locked in to trying to maximise a yield because you have started something that you really can't back out of for yep. that program. Mm. So for this, are you actually applying fertilisers at the same time at planting? No, no, we are, are not. Um, so uh, um, just briefly, no-kill has five uh, principles and briefly, sowing is done dry. So when the topsoil is dry, not when it's wet and moist. Uh, number two is uh, no uh, chemicals. Number three is um, uh, uh, no uh, uh, pesticides. Uh, sorry, uh, no fertilisers, sorry. And uh, four is uh, that the... Uh, the sowing is done with um, uh, straight running coulter equipment. We're not tilling the soil. We're not dragging anything through the soil. We're not turning the soil over. Very deliberately, we're leaving all the soil in place. So all of those functions that are nested in together underneath the soil can remain functional. They're not disturbed when we go and sow our crop. Very last principle is, is effective grazing management so that we get enough nutrient re return via the animals returning uh, vegetative material back onto the ground so that crops can uh, grow and thrive. So it's a very, in some ways, a very, very simple system, but its uh, um, uh, implications are so profound because now we actually have an opportunity to put the case that we can restore grasslands right around the world, but still retain them for grain production and animal production for humans. But we can maintain something there that, that is a very, very important base foundation for uh, biology and biodiversity across the whole planet. Beautiful. So human, soil and livestock coming across there, um, the three pillars to what your operation is producing for and also giving back um, through that soil as well. Have you had, like over your journey from the 90s, let's say, of improving your system, have you had a few gawking eyes from your neighbours or further afar, further afield um, about what's Bruce doing on the other side of the fence and how this looks so weird, unconventional? Yes, indeed. We've had many, many, many thousands of uh, visitors over uh, this period since about the year 2000. I think it's in excess of 5,000 
uh, or so people have visited here singly or in groups. Um, generally speaking, it's not the, the nearby uh, folk that will come, but that's um, uh, expressed as the donut effect. Not much happens in the middle um, as uh, being a, a, a an understandable sort of a uh, a thing to uh, to happen, but the, it's really pleasing that the ripples are uh, going out. And of course, no kill is just one of the things we we do. We've implemented many other things, too too many to uh, cover in one one podcast. But uh, that's what's kind of exciting about uh, folks that are uh, trying to go down a sustainable or regenerative line is that. There are many different avenues and, and if you like, um, many different toolboxes that they can use tools out of all of them or some of them or just mainly a few of them. Absolutely. And I'd imagine their faces have changed or their mindset going into it changed when they hop back on the bus in the car, in the ute. Um, when they come and have a look, they must be pretty interested to see maybe what they can do back on their own farm. In, indeed, I guess you, you have the range of reactions I'd like to suggest, which, once again, I'm totally comfortable with. The, for some folks, the, um, a change is as radical as what we have been able to achieve is looks either uh, too hard, too far away, or uh, just completely outside their worldview. So uh, a no-kill crop is a, is a classic. It looks messy because it is messy. There's maybe a hundred different species growing there in amongst all this crop. It isn't neat and tidy. So that, for you know, from a human perspective, I totally em empathise that some people will hop back on the bus and, and say, well, not for me, because if that's what your heart wants, you want to, everything neat and, and uh, straight and tidy and uniform, then this is a challenge, of course, for you, which is that, that uh, continual juggle that, with uh, uh, agriculture and especially with thinking about regen or sustainable agriculture, we want to let it rewild, but only, if you like, within parameters because yeah. they're going to be constrained. So I guess the trouble with, with um, uh, conventional modern ag is that we've got almost down to a very, very thin knife point. And an example of that would be think about the reactions uh, to uh, conventional industry if, if um, removal of glyphosate is discussed. So I'm not taking a position on whether it should or not yeah. because I just look at it as it's another tool and depending on how we use it, well, it, it'll be manifested in different ways. But there's often a really extreme reaction to any suggestion that that uh, uh, should be or could be taken away, which actually indicates how much of a fine point uh, and a narrow foundation most of the conventional systems are sitting on. If they are making a proposition that many of those systems cannot or will find it very difficult to operate without that one thing, then that means the foundation is very narrow. And so to help those, those folks, it's that sort of discussion and say, right, well, it is narrow there now. How can you help and broaden it? Which in some way sort of summarises what, I've always had the attitude is that the more that we can enhance some uh, functions within our own own place in a realistic way means that less I have to buy from outside. Yeah. And that is broadening that uh, basic function that supports our business and lifestyle. And becoming a little less reliant on just the one input that probably has the handle over 
your paddocks um, come sowing time, whether it come leading into harvest anyway, um, as we are currently as well. But you've got the no-kill cropping system. And you also, we touched on it before, but dealing with stress within ourselves as farmers, we can be quite stressed out, but also well for welfare of our livestock as well is paramount to what we do, especially if you're running cattle, sheep, goats, whatever it may be, water buffalo. Um, what has that meant for you, stockmanship, um, and lowering the stress when we are dealing with the animals? Indeed, it's a it's a big part of um, uh, of feeding humans, but not from the dietary sort of point yep. of view. <laughs> Heart and head again. Yeah, absolutely. It's a uh, it's a really really important interaction and uh, very simple uh, as well. If we're not uh, lowering as much as we can the anxiety that our animals are feeling while they're there, then we're not maximising their genetic potential. It's as simple as that. Or maximising the return on anything that we've invested in, whether it be a pasture or a water point or anything uh, like like that. So. Um, I've been lucky enough to be involved in the levels three and four of, of uh, livestock behavioural work, which is um, the stress-free stockmanship competencies, which are the um, uh, higher level uh, animal handling uh, competencies there, but then also developed with Dr. Dean Ravel, uh, the self-herding uh, uh, whole field of work, which is behavioural change on the broad, which means we're affecting the way uh, animals exhibit their habits in uh, across the whole landscape which changes starts to change everything uh, and so uh, that's a, a very very exciting and has great implications for right around the, the world really because when it comes down to grazing management to give you it, it falls down to two basic uh, uh, propositions with, with grazing management one is is population control of whatever animal or animals we've got on the landscape the other one is distribution of those animals, of however many you have. And that's the part where habits and behaviours are intricately lined in because they, just like us, are creatures of, of habit. So if we just leave them to their own devices, they will over and under occupy areas and those habits will tend to repeat. That's why with grazing management, we've uh, uh, up till recent times, uh, um, there's just been a reliance on fences or provision of water points and that sort of thing to get a redistribution. Here's another new avenue that we can get animals to choose to go around the landscape rather than be forced to reside in parts of the landscape. It's interesting. There's a few technologies now, like you can track where your animals are and some farmers, pastoralists, graziers, are actually setting up their trough systems by the way the animals interact with that said paddock. Um, or if not splitting it and being able to graze that more efficiently and offering what you say is more watering points for that. So you're not sort of focusing on the one area um, and impacting that soil in one area as well. There's probably outside value um, of adding more water points for the livestock. Indeed, yes. And uh, and so if we were coming to a, a, a property and I was there on advisory of work, I would be saying to that landholder, how do we make the most of those water points that you've installed? Because if we just leave the animals to go and do their thing, they will do their thing, which means that habitually, even out of those new water points, they will over and under occupy areas that have been uh, made available uh, to them. 
So changing behaviours isn't an either-or uh, proposition at all. It's, a, it's an overlay. So think about whatever you're doing, if we can uh, positively change animal behaviours to get more of what you want, well, then you're getting a better return on whatever hardware that you've spent your, your hard-earned money on. Certainly. Well, it's better to be um, not as stressed as much, and especially for your animals not to be stressed running in before going to market or something like that, selling them on. But what I wanted to look at was some of the biggest concerns to you, and you've noted down of climate change as a big one for a lot of people out there, and also species decline. What are these two for you? Yeah, so uh, uh, correct. I have um, uh, for a long time viewed them as actually being uh, uh, inherently interlinked, yep. that we we really can't in the long run uh, be thinking we're doing anything on uh, uh, climate change substantially if we keep on simplifying the biology and biodiversity of our whole planet. And, uh, and even though we, you know, we have individual responsibilities for the bits that we manage on our, our place, the effects of that, of course, go right around the, the whole uh, world. So, um, Species decline happens at, at you know the micro level as well as the the big furry critters that we uh, we see, and every time we lose a piece, we lose an opportunity to have function that we could otherwise have. In, uh, and so, by creating systems that that still do what we want as, as humans, but provide the maximum expression of um, of function, means that we're just doing our best to keep the total diversity because you know we can't measure everything or try and manage it down to an nth degree because that's not even the way nature works it's the connections of everything working together not just studying individual parts of it which give you an answer to to how uh, uh, those natural systems work to any level and it's it's exciting from my point of view that that we can operate in the space to try and creatively operate agricultural systems that help with climate change and species decline, rather than it being seen an, uh, as an opposite, that you can only do one or the other. I've never accepted that. I think that's where we can uh, creatively uh, change, which brings more enjoyment for the humans too. Yeah, absolutely. And just touching on species decline broadly and narrowing down, what sort of species are you worried about within your region? Um of losing and what did you want to sort of bolster up through your work and now your platform? Right, yes. Well, we've um, by reinstating more diversity on our, our place, the grassland, shrubland, woodland layer, we uh, we started to see a real explosion of um, uh, of increase of things. And the more noticeable things are, of course, things like birds and yep. large insects and, and uh, reptiles and other things that are sitting on top of a big pyramid of other organised organisms that uh, uh, we don't see or are aware of. And uh, so that's always exciting when you see something very large or you know, from the human eye is, is uh, anything we see is pretty large in the whole scheme of things. Uh, unfortunately, in the last 10 years, that, that's uh, started a, um, an increasing decline and that's um, uh, due to uh, passive chemical exposures. And that's, that's something that's playing out in agricultural areas everywhere, not just Australia. Uh, we have we do have a serious uh, issue there in in general, and we won't be leaving the, the podcast with a, a negative because it's a it's a challenge that we can solve, yeah. but we can't solve it 
if we don't recognise that, in fact, a lot of the, um, the compounds that we've been using um, uh, to enhance production are actually spreading very much further than where they've been applied. And that is a bigger problem than just regarding or talking about the compounds themselves or, or their um, you know, desirability of being uh, uh, applied because they're going and expressing themselves widely. This is um, uh, you know, uncontrolled experiments in the broad, which are very discernibly affecting uh, diversity. So therefore, in the long run, we, we won't be uh, really achieving climate goals because um, if we're planting trees or, or, or other plants for argument's sake to address climate change, they cannot thrive in the long term unless they have a full biota with them. They're not just a tree. They've got the full yeah. assemblage of everything else. So start knocking out, out uh, pieces out of the uh, this big Jenga puzzle and uh, sooner or later the whole thing's going to uh, fall. That's it. Is it? It is a little bit of a puzzle. Um, but once you've got that puzzle sorted out, you can find the pieces that suit your area, your paddock, um, and put them all in play. For other farmers out there, how would they be able to adopt some strategies that you've taken on board? Um, and also probably those ones out there thinking this is all hogwash and a little bit too far afield of what they're doing and they wouldn't be able to achieve this on their own farm. What would you say to them? What sort of strategies or ways that they can sort of introduce this sort of way of thinking? Oh, indeed. I think uh, uh, starting genuinely from from that end, uh, if we were having a one-on-one a, a -on -one conversation, that's where I'd, I'd start. Not to convince anybody of anything, but actually to to uh, genuinely assist and say, well, where where would you like to to go, and what do you want it to um, the situation to be like for your own own place, but also your own community in the long run. And your own business, so all of all of those things, and then let's talk about then things that are useful uh, to you from that perspective. Anything else is is irrelevant to an indiv individual, and uh, and so for folks watching this broadcast and so forth, um, it it would be don't just get uh, too overwhelmed by the the fact that that here I am down down a track after uh, some decades doing stuff. So therefore, that can look like far too big a leap. And yes, you know, don't try and climb a mountain without going to base camps first and where you're comfortable from initially. Absolutely. I think as farmers, it's better to be comfortable than out of your comfort zone at the early stages of adopting new things, new challenges, new innovation or technology. Um, but for yourself, what's the future of your farming system? Where do you see it going in the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I do see uh, uh, quite exciting uh, parts uh, uh, to be added on with the end products of uh, the grain side of things in, in particular, and that's uh, uh, starting to be taken up by the next generation who are, uh, in my particular case, are much better on the spanner than I ever uh, was with fixing things. So uh, the, uh, the, the complementary and, uh, and nutrient-diverse uh, aspects of the, the grain production uh, there are going to be interesting parts that we've started a journey with bakers and e even indeed brewers now to uh, explore that. But then thinking about all of the understory that's there on that grassland as well, that's where that um, is really, really interesting to think about. We've got many other plants there, 
putting some seed into this whole situation and chaff and other other compounds, they're all things that potentially can make it into an expanded chain of, uh, of products rather than just usually just being returned to the paddock for nutrient cycling or at best go to, going through an animal. So uh, that's exciting. Uh, you know, not think about that necessarily most of those are going to replace our standard crops. That's not the point, but we uh, uh, use things like poppy seeds on top of uh, a, uh, uh, a bread loaf, don't we? So there's an example of a little bit of something else makes quite a difference while we're still holding the bulk with our standard products. Very true. And for your farming operation, what type of innovations have you used either technique innovations or leading into technology into the 2020 sort of farming um, technology is getting more appropriate for farms um, in different areas, but what sort of things have you adopted? Yes, yes, indeed. Yes. I think um, some re remote monitoring and so forth has been very useful. Um, we, uh, and um, uh, GPS guidance for the, uh, uh, the modern tractors now, just because of the, the width of the implements there, they're uh, taking and so forth. We don't need to do tram lines because we're traveling over the ground when it's at its strongest, when it's dry rather than when it's moist. Um, but one, one thing we like to try and do as best as, as possible in this very technological world is not have a total reliance on those tools as well. That if uh, tomorrow, if the whole internet went, went down or something like that, that you can still continue to uh, function. Because once again, if we're just getting down to uh, uh, total reliability on uh, connection to the World Wide Web as being our business case, well, then, of course, you are susceptible to any disruptions that that might provide. So none of us are, are um, uh, disconnected from all of that nowadays. It doesn't matter whether it's the shirt I wear or the, the objects in the house or anything else. There's so much that I cannot make. You can't be completely self-sufficient. That time in history has, has passed. We are all interconnected. But as much as possible, resilience is about being able to take a knock. In other words, yeah. almost back to that uh, Jenga puzzle thing, can you take out a piece or two and the whole thing not collapse? Then you've got a bit of a foundation. Yeah, I think that may be the case. And then... Maybe in 10 years, we'll have to teach your kids actually how to check a trough's water float rather than looking on their phone for the remote watering app. Um, but Bruce, for yourself, before we go, what would be the piece of farms advice that you'd like listeners to take away from this episode? Right. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> One piece. Wow. That's a great question. I'll, throw, I'll just turn away for a moment and grab a, a book um, uh, and um, actually show you three, three books to... Uh, to uh, finish off that I might suggest people uh, could benefit from reading. Um, yes, um, uh, maybe the, the old um, uh, so-called golden rule, do unto others as you would do unto them, and maybe that uh, is as good as, uh, as, as anything. And, um, and so just uh, books to uh, uh, sharp is uh, Charlie Massey's uh, uh, book called The, the Reed Warbler, and uh, it has a further description in there of, everything we've been uh, talking about, what we uh, uh, do on our, our place. Uh, this one by Fred Provenza, Nourishment. I've worked uh, extensively with Fred and uh, he was uh, very much the, uh, one of the huge foundational reasons that self-herding came about as a new field of practice and uh, a really great description 
And then last one, looking for, uh, quite a bit thinner, but you can get it uh, for free online, which is self, self-herding, self uh, the, uh, the booklet that um, Dean Ravel and myself co-wrote, and uh, that's available at selfherding.com. Amazing. Yeah, good to see another farmer getting into the books and seeing how else and what else can be done for our own farms and spotting the gaps, opportunities. Um, great stuff. Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast, Bruce. Great to speak to our very first 22 uh, Bob Hawke Award winner. Thank you very much for the invitation, uh, Jack, and all the best to you and all your listeners. Thank you for tuning in to the Farms Advice Podcast. It is produced by Advert Your Eyes Digital, the agribusiness marketing specialist. Go to farmsadvice.com.au for more information on this episode and the others before and spread the farm's advice. If you love this episode, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe as it helps other farmers find us too. But until then, next Tuesday, keep on farming. In the spirit of reconciliation, the Farms Advice podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of country for Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.